Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Fundamental Process Podcast. Today, we have an interview with Taylor Ryan. He is the Chief Marketing Officer of Valuer.ai. That's a company that matches startups to investors. He has an extensive background in startups, growth marketing, and BIM, building information management software. He's originally from Washington, D.C., but now resides in Denmark. Hello, Taylor. Hey, David. Thanks for having me. Yeah, fantastic to speak with you here. I know we uh, touched base earlier. In the conversation that we had, it really struck me that through your experience, through your interest in architecture, as well as your experience in software that we had both seen where with the way that both business design and philosophy even in the world is changing, uh, one of the hallmarks of this is the, the consistency between architecture and software on many fronts. And one of these is uh, the idea of wholeness or fit. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot at play there. And, uh, you know, from our last conversation that, unfortunately, I wish we had recorded that. Uh, I think there's there's so many different parallels that are, are, are kind of exposing a need in both sides to start to kind of take apart some of these old traditional uh, perspectives of either developing software or developing buildings in which people interact with the space. And I think sometimes there is a, a, a limited amount of crossover in terms of, of actually being able to put numbers to that stuff, but also being able to test it. And I love the concept of being able to take my experience from building software and doing a ton of development for startups, but apply it to an industry that I'm absolutely fascinated with and an industry that uh, you've, you've obviously had a ton of experience with, which is architecture. Well, I think that is, I think you bring up one of the most fantastic points there, which is the idea of testing, about bridging what has been a gap between the qualitative and the quantitative. Uh, I think that sometimes uh, quantitative can get a little bit too narrowly focused, especially if it's on something that is already resolved the real groundbreaking stuff of empirical study and this is what science always tries to do is when you're going into areas um, for example color theory is a great example of this is that we now have all kinds of metrics anyone who's used photoshop anyone who's who knows the phrase cmyk understands color space you can measure this we have pantone in then it's important to remember in the 19th century this was all considered romantic spiritualist stuff. <laughs> Even in the 1920s, it was considered like a weird religion to talk about color. But now we understand that, yes, it has this, it speaks to our feelings. Obviously, you can walk into a room that's colored one way, a room that's colored another way, and, and you feel different. The beautiful thing is that we now have these quantitative metrics that help us get a, a really practical handle on how to deal with it and reaching out with into new areas in design, in software, uh, to bring an empirical database focus, as you're saying, I, I think presents tremendous opportunity. I agree. I, I think it reminded me, as you were saying that, of uh, a quote that I used to always enjoy, which was, you know, the radical ideas of one generation are the common sense of the next. And I think this is all kind of this iterative process of figuring out 
kind of what works and what is kind of deemed to be beautiful at the same time. And I find it fascinating, and maybe you can tell me this, from the perspective of someone that's more of a creative, I think we often try to shield ourselves from outside opinions or outside forces because we have a perspective, a roadmap, and our ideas, our own thoughts, and things that we believe we must see within a project, whether it's architecture or website design, doesn't matter. Um, but how do you take the outside thoughts as saying, I expect people to engage with this, this project this way. How do you, as an architect, how do you test that? How do you, other than just assuming and knowing from your past experience, is there a way that you are able to kind of bring in outside forces without feeling like you're, you're, I don't know, scuttling the, the whole creative process? Yeah, I think that that is that touches on what has been a very current debate in architecture and design generally for, oh gosh, maybe 40 or 50 years. Uh, the key word there is that they tend to call it autonomy, <laughs> that, you know, should, should it be, should uh, there be creative autonomy in architecture? And I think what makes it so vital and so important is that you mentioned both websites and architecture. What makes those creative endeavors really special is that they only exist because they're shared. So the whole idea, it, it becomes a real challenge because yes, it is creative. Yes, it does have to do with a kind of inspiration of an individual, but there is an absolute necessity to share it. Because I mean, a building, a, a website for one person makes absolutely no sense. A building for one person could, hmm. if, if it's kind of like an isolated hermit type situation, <laughs> but, but those are the exception. It's, it's, all, it's always something that deals with, with more than one person. You know, at, at the smallest possible scale, you'd say a family for a building. Uh, and with a, with a website, it it's very often has to do with uh, the, the internal workings of a company or the internal workings of a company, plus the customers they're reaching out to. So it really becomes a necessity to find out how are people feeling about this? And um, you want to build with that in mind. And I have found that when you approach this in the right way, and, and there, there is established precedent for this, there's, there's established method for this, which is continuing to develop and change and evolve, which is great, that it is it actually becomes a spur to inspiration <laughs> you you discover more uh, what i found in my experience is that when you truly listen to clients when you truly listen to customers you get inspired to things that are better than you would have ever thought of and then your job as a designer your job as an architect is then to to truly listen to the values of these people to listen to what they care about and that's not easy Partially, it's not easy because people, even when people try, even when people try to say what they truly like, it, it, that's not easy. Um, it, it, you have to really drill down into what seems like you like it, and then you have to think about it. And experiencing helps. That's the big thing, is that if you try to interact with the actual thing in the actual way you would do it and bring it as close to that as possible. And I think that's, that's the short answer, is to model out things and do empirical experiential tests in the software space you do this with user interface testing um in the architecture space you do it with models mock-ups um there's uh the work of, of christopher alexander has been instrumental in this uh there the, his famous book pattern language which he wrote um with with several other 
uh, architects uh, in the in the 70s, which influenced software quite a bit, uh, that has laid out it, really what it is is it's a method. Pattern language is a method for interacting, um, and that that goes into all kinds of detail. But the from what I've learned in uh, in practice and in making things, it is. Uh, bringing things into the actual experience rather than having it just in your head first and then execute. Because if that happens, and that's the old industrial method, and we've seen the consequence of this, is that you get you get all the benefits of things like serial production. You get the benefits of efficiency. You get the benefits of cost reduction. But then you you get the th things don't fit right. Things don't feel right. You know, one size doesn't fit all. We're all very familiar with those challenges. And so now in what people call a post-industrial society, post-industrial economy, um, new economy, although that's an, now an old phrase, that you get, uh, we, we have the opportunity to overcome these challenges. And I think this, this new kind of methodology uh, really brings a lot of value to new process and it encourages inspiration, I think. It's it's really interesting as you were saying that I, I'm thinking of a conversation that I had with a, a close friend of mine who's an architect and he had a client that wanted a wanted an office that was circular and didn't want to include the stairwell to go up to the top two floors inside of the facility for two reasons one is it was an extra expense and the other was she thought it would be interesting to have people walking outdoors in order to get to the next two levels, which from an architect standpoint sounds like madness. Um, I'm sure you've engaged with clients. I certainly have from a software perspective where it <laughs> it's one of those things where you just have to say, no, 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 no. How do you show empirical proof that this is, this is not beautiful, this is ugly? Or, you know, that's the first rule from what I understand in your industry is, you can't say, I don't like it. You have to say why. And you have to show something yeah. in the way of either quantitative data or something in the way of a, a point of proof to say, this is an example of why this doesn't work and how it could be better because X, Y, and Z. How, what are your experiences on that in terms of that, that level of feedback? Because it would sound to me that building a model all the way to fruition just to show, look, this isn't how you would experience this. It doesn't make any sense. How do you mitigate that? That is a very, very important challenge. I think that when when you're deal when you're dealing with that, and I've I've dealt with that in both software and in the the physical design world. I mean, uh, a very good example in software is sometimes people can get uh, obsessed with nested hierarchies, right? So, like if you they they love drilling into menus because they feel like it's awesome. But then it's like, no, if you have all your choices up front, it actually is not cluttered. It's actually fine. Um, but yeah, you can't, you, you want to reserve. I mean, models models get you a lot. Um, however, you time is the most limited of all resources. And you want to spend your time resources on the modeling and on the experience and on the interaction, um, making not to make the obvious choices. You want to use your modeling to discover the non-obvious things, ideally. So with, with a situation like that, yeah, I mean, there's one situation where you could model it and have this client, you know, spend half a day where they and their interns are, you know, walking outside to do everything. And 
they would probably within 10 minutes realize that that they would prefer it a different way um that probably would work <laughs> but you could um uh, i for a ch for a challenge like that if i would imagine that situation or you know analogous situations i think that you know the old the old phrase benefits not features that you want to say okay you, you'd talk you would list consequences and you'd say well there are and and, you, and of course you want to acknowledge that people don't want things for no reason people want things for a reason and and uh you have to weigh the good of what they want against the bad which would probably frustrate them more than they imagine so um if, if they're imagining something with with a bad consequence then i think the good challenge is to is is to acknowledge the good that's in it and then uh i think the, the kind of design victory there would be to salvage the good aspect but use that but to get to that good thing they want and implement it in a different and creative way because really that's what you're being paid for as a designer is it's, 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 it's to solve stuff like that um that's what you know the, 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 it's what the average person wouldn't take the time and have the background to be doing that's why they want you to do it uh so if if, if you say to them okay so you so you want it to be outside because you don't want it interfering with the space so it's like why do you want it like that and, and, and you really get to the fundamentals of why they want to say, now, if we did that, you would get that advantage, but you would have these disadvantages and you list the disadvantages and they'll probably understand. And then you say, okay, now how I'm going to work on how we can get the, how we can get as much of these advantages as possible while avoiding this thing. And, and typically, and then if you, I have found when dealing with, with clients um, and, and, de and dealing with team members is, is that when you present things, it's really tempting to just say, no, 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 absolutely not. Um, and sometimes in the interest of time, you want to do that. And the better working relationship you have with someone, yeah. the better relationship you have with someone, the more often you can do that. Um, and, and the thing is, you have to be careful with that because if you do that too much, you're shutting off your own creativity. You're shutting off their creativity. But if you kind of slow yourself down a little bit and instead of and instead of the no, wait a minute, we go this way, um, you present the options that you're thinking of and you present it to them and give them the opportunity to choose what you also think is the best one. And sometimes they will choose that one and sometimes they'll push for another one of your options and then sometimes you combine them and um moving forward in creative dialogue that way i've i, I found to be very useful i, I definitely understand that i have i've had i think it's different and, and and maybe you can tell me with the architecture world being able to show a mocked up uh user interface or user experience to give people a feel for what you're trying to explain to them is invaluable in terms of being able to implement, you know, some of these 3D tools to get something in the way of a BIM modeling that maybe you're able to lead somebody through in a, a VR sense so that they actually are inside and experiencing, not from this, uh, you know, drawing perspective, but literally inside of the, the digital building that hasn't actually been kind of finalized. Have you experienced kind of a push in that direction? Do you see other people within the architecture scene starting to grasp onto these opportunities to say, instead of trying to have these red-faced arguments, 
or, or trying to, to convince somebody that won't budge, give them the immersive experience of potentially using these new tools that are on the cusp of everybody's fingertips potentially and giving them a chance to actually experience the building itself in a, a real world environment potentially. I, I think that that is a really important point and one of the most important points of it shows how it, it it remains to be seen what the consequences will be of uh of, of say the VR stuff. I think that that the a very good example of this is um people who have done color correction, um pe people who have worked in whenever you print something. Hmm. What you're seeing on the screen, not the same color as what comes out once you hit print. <laughs> See, it's even, it's even not the same color as when you go from one computer to another. It's not even the same color as to when you're using the same computer and it's 10 in the morning as to 4 in the afternoon. Great example. Yeah. So, so this, is why, this is why VR is hard. As, as a tool, as a tool for making de design decisions, that's one reason why it's hard. Another reason why it's hard is that the, um, the creation of these mock-ups is incredibly time-consuming. I've worked, I've worked for architecture firms that have like one and a half people devoted to like during project, serious project time, one and a half people devoted to, uh, you know, 3D renderings. And that's, and that's because, and that's not even design decisions. That's because you're making a presentation for the bidding process, which speaks to the frustrating aspects of, 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 the, of the business environment, but that's another issue. For making, for, for making design decisions, it is, going to be it's it's going to be interesting to see now i would i would say that it's it's important to it's it's going to be important to discover how the 3d modeling helps and which decisions at what point in the design process it's best for because if there, there's a chance there, there's a chance that this is going to create the you know it, it doesn't print the way that it looked phenomenon you're going to get a completely different feeling and it's it's pot the, the danger here is to design something that feel you, you're if you're designing for the virtual environment if you're designing for the immersive environment that is different than the physical place and i think that people should people shouldn't be afraid to do things like uh, use cardboard boxes to 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 block out spaces, um, and and do something that fast uh, and that um, that immediate to get a sense of the feel of how big something should be, for example, or what shape it should be. Um, I at, at the same time, um, I I think you should definitely not be afraid of doing something so simple as that. Also, um, use discover the VR for uh for what it's best at and these these things take time it's i mean you're you, within within like even three project cycles uh, it, that would be just the beginning of understanding how vr as a tool would be best done and uh well part of the challenge this is, this is a long-term technology thing are uh the ways of displaying 3d information 
there are ways to do that much better than we have right now. And um, having 3D superimposed onto 2D is the same problem as drawings. An animated drawing is still a drawing, and that's where we are right now. If you put it around, well, that's a, that's a panorama. Um, and those, I, I think those are important. Uh, but it, it is pointing, I think the exciting thing is that that's, that's pointing to a way of interacting with computers that, um, you know, that hasn't come out to market yet. Well, I think there are a number of really, and this is a, a thought that I, I was having while you were speaking as well, and it's something that I, I think we discussed in our, our last time speaking, was the concept of, of people actually accepting new technology and integrating it into their current process. I think if you talk to anybody that is doing any type of vocation, and I, I mean, anytime you're using software, whether you're a video editor or you're a web developer, or you're an architect, I think there's always this, this aversion to have to learn a new process that completely replaces the one that you were comfortable with. How do you see people stepping into these new spheres of technology if there is an apprehension to the unknown or to things that they're not necessarily familiar with? And where do they get these skills? That's a really good point. I think that the the important balance to strike here is a golden mean uh, between two extremes because I think, it's, I think it's important to remember that yes, there is the resistance to new processes and that comes about because it takes a time investment. The learning curve, when you're in the middle of a profession, especially a profession that you rightly or wrongly feel you have a high level of skill at in order to stop, slow down, uh, to feel like you're in kindergarten again, um, I think it's healthy, by the way, to enjoy feeling like you're in kindergarten yes. again and learning something new. That's super, that's, that's how you stay creative. It's how you keep your business vibrant. But anyway, so the, there, there is the resistance to that because you've got to take time to devote to something new and you have to avoid the pitfalls. Uh, and, and because the other side of that extreme is the kind of technological exuberance. There, there was an old Onion article years ago talking about, uh, they had some clever name for it, like a Photoshop filter syndrome <laughs> or something, that whenever whenever this graphic designer gets a new Photoshop filter, they're having uh, like nothing but trapezoidal transforms of his fonts <laughs> for, for two months okay. until, he, until he gets over the novelty. So you, you, you can get carried away by the technology just as easily as you can resist it. And I think humans are complex enough that we can do both at the same time. We can be resisting one aspect of the technology while being overexcited about another. So I think what I've always tried to do and what I, what I think is important for people is you wanna, you wanna find the balance between the two. You wanna be self-critical of your own process uh, you want to see, you want to, you want to, you want to talk with people. That's part of it. You want to talk with people about how they use it. Like what have been their challenges with it? What have they found it useful for? And look at the outcomes, like see, really look at your own work objectively, look at other people, work, other people's work objectively and say, okay, how is this actually influencing things? How can it be better? Because, you know, the new, the new technology definitely will always have something to give you. And the challenge is finding out how. Really interesting. This goes on a conversation I was having with a, a, another company that does uh, some, some BIM work, uh, BIM equity out here in Denmark. Uh, and the idea is that you, know, you have your 3D, we all know 3D generated drawings. 
You have 4D, 5D, and 6D. The idea is 4D is this time management element that you can tie to potentially every square meter being X amount of time for those that are working. 5D is the cost. And then 60 is potentially the life cycle beyond once the building is there, upkeep and all these other elements. Do you find that architects care about that or is it a silo effect where it's like, not my problem, over the wall? And, and if that's the case, what, what is the percentage of, of architects that are like, look, I, I have my way of creating and this is what I do well. I don't believe in the expanse that's coming because I'm good in the now. Is there is there a, a sliver of the architectural industry that believes that this is the future, applying AI to our drawings and all these other things that has to be done? Is it 1%? Is it 20%? I know it's not half, <laughs> you know? Ooh, yeah. Um... I, I I couldn't speak for the for for the for the percentage of how people feel on that, but you know, in in terms of thinking uh, thinking long term like that, I, in my experience, the architects tend to care. I definitely care about all those added dimensions, especially what you're talking about with the sixth dimension over the life cycle. There's a fantastic book that explores this in depth by Stuart Brand called How Buildings Learn. Uh, which looks at the time dimension. It looks at the time dimension and the life cycle of the building uh, past the cycle of its current uh, programmatic use. Uh, and I think bringing that, bringing that into software is really, really, really an important question. Uh, I think that the, I found that clients, clients and developers uh, far too often induce architects uh, through through schedules, through budgets, uh, through often through time pressure to uh, to not think about those extra dimensions. I think that if you're dealing with the new quantitative aspects of something like BIM or AI, that that could that that could definitely help because what I mean, you know, what it does is that it, it it takes the calculations which you would have to have a whole staff to do, um, and it lets it, it it lets you see that it 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 takes it takes the time out of uh, doing that modeling and that and that forecasting and and you can look at different scenarios. You you're talking about the time element. Well, something that's really important with design is called configuration space. The idea that you have branching time. And I think that's, if you're bringing this into the metaphysical realm, uh, which I consider practical. Um, so if you zoom out, zoom out metaphysically, you see that the fifth, you were talking about the budget being fifth dimensionally. I think that's very apt because um, you're making, you have time, if you think about time, time in your design process, as you're making decisions, you make decisions about this scale, and it's a good idea to go from large decisions to small decisions scale-wise, because they affect each other that way nicely. You don't want to design a doorknob before you design the whole door. So you have the, uh, you're going through time with your design process and you have branching points and you have perhaps probably with all the design decisions you're making, probably thousands of different possible outcomes, but you're going to have one of them. And at each branch, each decision is a branch on this tree. 
and you eventually arrive at the one and you hope you're going to get to the best one. And that's what you try to do as a designer. And with the budgeting, you're seeing, okay, the budgeting is part of that fifth dimension, which is a dimension abstracted from the fourth dimension where you see how the fourth dimension line of time branches which is what makes it fifth dimensional. And so budgets are a key part of that because you're deciding, okay, how much money do I put on this? How much money do I put on this? If I spend, um, if I spend more on the plumbing so that we can have the, the bathrooms be separate or do you want the bathrooms all together? What does that do to the rest of the house? And so on and on. Um, I think that this is very, very important to have these extra dimensions. I think people shouldn't shy away from it. I think the habits of the industry, you're talking about the resistance to the technology, the habits of the business might say, hey, we already know the path, uh, the, the fourth dimension is a straight line, uh, it's optimized, uh, we're just used to it. Well, you're not gonna improve stuff if you keep going that way. So, so the opportunity of the software is to show if there's a better way. I think what's really, really important with BIM that I would love to hear more discussion of is um, how tools tend to be value neutral. We all know this. That's, that's why tools can do great things and also can damage things. You know, a hammer driving a nail is great. Absolutely. A hammer breaking something is terrible. <laughs> uh, and you can apply that to any tool. So BIM, is like this, it's value neutral. So it raises the question of, okay, so the system that you're setting up, you, you have to be, uh, there's a great advantage in talking about, and we talked about this earlier here, about uh, discovering the value of the client, discovering what the client truly wants in the communication, because if BIM is just kind of, if, if, if the designer and the client are not strongly asserting what they want and what their values are, then there's gonna be kind of a default pre-configured preference within however BIM is set up. And it'll, stuff will end up hewing to templates unless you put your values strongly in it. And I think that might be why some people are resistant to BIM, because they see that, and that's a real danger, but that doesn't mean you get rid of BIM. That means that you, you, you assert your values within it. Very interesting perspective. Yeah, I, I, this was something that we had discussed before. There's a, a company that is kind of in, in the space of startups. Uh, it's, it's a unicorn these days. It's called WeWork. And they have really doubled down on uh, this, this concept called uh, spatial analytics. Uh, in fact, they acquired a company called Euclid that focuses purely on this in terms of how humans are interacting with their environments within an office space in order to optimize either enjoyment or something in the way of uh, the feel you know, of an office. And I think they're really leading the way on this. It's a fascinating look if, if you ever uh, look up uh, WeWork and spatial analytics or just Euclid. There's some really fun stuff in there. And I find it really interesting because retail's been doing this for years already. There's a reason that the cereal section has uh, a, a value level in terms of the second shelf being the most expensive place to put uh, colorful kids' cereal boxes because it's eye level for children. And so they know that, hey, if little Tommy down there sees Fruit Loops, he's going for it, you know? And if it were on the top shelf, little Tommy probably wouldn't be asking mom for it. 
So there's this whole idea of there is a reason and a rationale for every single element and every single product display within a, a mall, a store, uh, and even at the checkout counter. There's a reason they put candy there. <laughs> you know, it's the same thing in terms of where you should be putting your bathrooms and, and where you should be uh, potentially designing, uh, you know, the layout of a conference room and the workspace uh, for each individual. And I think applying a lot of data to that is absolutely fascinating because I don't see I don't see a lot of research of where that's existed prior to this, at least in a big data sense. And I was curious what your perspectives are on, on that type of technology. I think that's really interesting that you have um, the phrase that comes to mind with what you were describing there is ecosystem, that it's a it's a social ecosystem. If you think about how um, grocery stores have been laid out. Um, and that, that is a really interesting example in a case study to, to make because it's been a kind of emergent science. I mean, you know, um, all, all the great marketing stuff that started in the 1920s aside, yes, there was a lot of focused stuff there, but a, a lot of this was just through pure bottom-up observation. Uh, and when you can aggregate data uh, at scale, I think that that can that can that can tell you a lot. I think what the new technology does now, now the difference, the difference between the kind of uh, late industrial and the early network economy, uh, which is this, I suppose that's a good way to mention the transition that we've been through in the past thirty years, the from late industrial to early network. Um, is that the, the, the type of, um, for lack of a better phrase, top-down uh, marketing observations where you just, you just observe people in a supermarket, you, you see what they're doing, you see what they discover, and you think, huh, okay, well, they're going um, to have better access to this if we put it here. It's going to make a bigger impact here. Um, and that, that accomplishes quite a bit. I think that now the logistics for dialogue like, for example, if you imagine people filling out surveys, f filling out surveys in the early 90s, what an absolute logistical nightmare that would be to try to deploy that at scale with millions of people. Um, it, you do this now, the barriers to entry are so much lower and people will, the best way that it happens is when people want to participate, people want to give feedback. Uh, and this has started, tech companies have been doing this maybe for 10 or 15 years where they, they, they solicit feedback and they collect feedback. Uh, this has been a huge help for software innovation. Um, and I think finding systematic ways of effectively creating this dialogue. Um, and, and, and again, things, um, th things like pattern language and architecture have shown an early example of Yes, this can be done. Yes, there are specific ways that you can structure the dialogue to make it be most effective. And I think that reaching reaching out to people uh, to collect the data in a way that's a conversation is going to take things to uh, to another level. It's really interesting. I, I as you were saying that, I, I'm reminded of a study that I remember seeing um, in terms of the way that people interact with specifically retail spaces. It can be a grocery store, it can be whatever, um, but it, it's different in different communities. So in the United States, 
we first, when we enter a supermarket, a store, it doesn't matter, we glance to our left and then we make a uh, counterclockwise approach around the store. That's why they always have people turning right as soon as they go into any supermarket. And that's where they initially put produce. So you turn right and you do this counterclockwise approach to the entire thing. But oddly enough, in the UK, roads are on the different side. You're used to walking across the street. You have to look right first. <laughs> so people do a different, uh, yeah, d completely different way. Sorry, go ahead. I was, I was going to say, I wonder if they, I wonder if they flip it in Australia for the Coriolis effect. <laughs> it makes you wonder. <laughs> Maybe yeah. you never know. But it is one of those fascinating things, and and I'm curious, like, at what point did these these concepts, these ideas, perforate into new industries or an industry like yours, the architecture industry? And as you mentioned, is it a bottom-up approach where you have to have the lowly early architect with crazy ideas that throws them to their boss and says, "Hey, look at this. This is neat. Can we do this? Can I can I front run this?" Or is it the the partner of the organization? Or the CEO that says, we're changing stuff now, this is the stuff that we adhere to. How does that work in your industry? Oh boy. Well, <laughs> um, the short answer is not often enough. Ah. <laughs> the, um, but it's, yeah, th th there's been a lot of breakthrough. Um, there, there are some people that I have spoken with who work in Germany, who work in the Pacific Northwest who have, uh, through persistence, through experience, really, they really have brought about um, new methods and uh, new ways of doing things. And uh, I think the thing, the thing about this is that if you get people, the way I've seen it, the way I've seen it written is, um, this was a description of teaching students these methods and in, in that they, they actually started getting good once they relaxed. Hmm. And you have to get them to relax and then, then, then they'll actually get the process because I think that a lot of people are stuck in kind of a mental prison of imagining that things have to be a certain way because they've experienced it this way or because, you know, the, the, the old bugaboo everyone else is. The, people are creating their own barriers to their own success that way. And, and, and businesses do that very famously. Uh, I think that being able to understand what's possible is really important and, and to relax into that, to not get worried uh, about it. And it, it's, it's hard to do. It's not easy. Uh, it, it does take a lot of effort. I think that, I mean, hopefully this gets into a little bit of a generational thing, but yeah. I think that uh, software, software has been such a fantastic microcosm because the barriers to entry are ultra low. They're always going to be lower than something physical. Uh, the, uh, the, the whole idea of, um, especially with web development where you don't even have to compile your code, you just load it in a browser and you can iterate. Sure. That, that's been hugely enlightening to the creative process. And then you, you can extend that out. I think the, um, because people have been, this does date me, uh, uh, I'm, not, I'm not uncomfortable with dating myself. I can talk about how, so when I, when I was going through school, um, you know, everyone would ask for things in word format. People don't do that so much anymore, but sometimes they do. But there was a time when people would get mad at you if they thought you weren't using Microsoft Word. <laughs> you know, and I, 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 sometimes I did, 
Word 5.0 on a Macintosh was actually nice. Yeah. <laughs> Word 6 was terrible. But so, no, so I would, I, I, I used, I used Macs. And so being in that situation, you, you kind of got used to, I, I thank my personal history for this, for me using something that was different and getting used to people saying, but that can't happen. It's like, and I was like, it, it, it did. It's fine. Y yes, you will be. No, I'm not going to be able to open this. Please, yes, yes, you can double click it. There you go. <laughs> yeah, and and that's that. That's an important little mini lesson, I think, about how so often things are easier than we expect. That it, yes, it can be different. It could be better. Um, relax about it. Be open to it. And and I, and I think people who have lived through that, who have lived through you know old habits being broken are able to, the more that we bring that mindset to the broader world, the, the, the more we're gonna be able to accomplish. Fascinating. You know, I, I remember seeing a, a video of a, a small child trying to play with a Game Boy and assuming it worked like an iPad, you know, where they're like, what are these buttons oh, for, you know? And, and that's what yeah. they're used to now. And I think it does go back the other direction. If you're used to every new technology, being a burden and being clunky and it's not ever going to be as good as what it was before, then you're always going to look at this path forward as an element of frustrations because now I got to get used to something that's just as bad, maybe slightly better. But I think we have this world now where sometimes stuff just works, you know, and, and you don't question it because you don't have to because it works fine. It's now kind of integrated into your existence. And I wonder if that might be the reason that so many folks that are, are maybe of a, a baby boomer generation are more adverse to accepting some of this technology that could automate, that could reduce some of the processes because it's viewed as this MS Word uh, situation that you had before where it's like, I liked it the way it was before, you know? Uh, right. What are your thoughts? Well, I think that's, yeah, I think that the... The, the generational thing is important and and it's very real. Uh, I think it's all it's also important to remember that there are uh, different personality types. There's been a lot of discussion lately in kind of pop psychology about um, about psychometrics and the, these different traits, things like conscientiousness, openness, um, it's it's uh, agreeableness, etc. And I think, it's, I think it's important to pay attention to the very real dynamics of generations and at the same time, pay attention to how people are. I mean, one of the things that, um, Steve Jobs said a lot of good things and sometimes not, but uh, w one of the good things he said was is that his theory of management was the Beatles, which seems like crazy CEO talk, but when, you, when he actually went into it, he, he said that the, the whole reason the Beatles were great is because their personalities balanced each other, like their, their, their varying skills balanced each other out and brought out the best in each other. And it was because they were different that yes, there was tension there, but that tension was a specific kind of synthetic tension that made the greatness. So that within generations, you're gonna have people who are more open. If someone has a personality trait of openness, they're going to tend to love the new stuff because they see it as if they're open and conscientious, they're going to see the new stuff as a fun challenge and they're going to ignore the frustrating things and they're going to buckle down on the stuff that's useful. Um, and then someone who's low in openness, 
is just going to see it as, as frustrating and it might take them a bit longer to get used to it. At the same time, it's important to have the person who wants the innovation. It's also important, these are the, the, the golden mean of the extremes I was talking about earlier, the person who's low in openness is going to be very good at saying what you need to keep the same. Because that's very true. Is that because if you're changing everything all the time, you're going to be throwing baby out with the bathwater uh, and it will be a mess. Uh, if you don't change anything, well, then, then, then it just fossilizes and there's no innovation. So you need, it helps to have a good dialogue between people of low openness and high openness. And so generationally, yeah, you can see that. Um, and um, I, years ago, I was, uh, I, I met a guy where I, I was explaining new computer stuff to him. And he actually educated me about a lot of stuff. He was an old engineer. And I, I thought it was great because number one, he, I, I'd never seen someone his age who is not only not intimidated by computers, but he was just curious about everything. And then he explained to me, he, he said, oh yeah. And he talked about how he remembered slide rules and all that. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And he said, well, you know, this is why, if you ever wonder why things happen faster now, this is it. And he points to the computer <laughs> and, he, and he says, yeah, it's, it's, it's because everything happens faster because we're not doing stuff by hand. And he like, he listed all the processes that used to happen on paper or by hand. And I thought, wow, how profound is that? That this guy remembers that transition and remembers how and why. And that's, that's something that is easy. That's a blink and you miss it historical transition that we've been living through. And, and because, because you have that perspective from the guy of the older generation who has the high openness, you, you get to really understand how the transformation's happening. So I think that there's, uh, again, that, that dialogue among people is, is very important, that sometimes, sometimes you'll have people who are resistant, and like, but, but even within that, you'll have, you'll have the pockets of openness. It definitely makes sense. And, and, you know, I think we all can probably relate in some way or another to a boss or a superior that was really fluid in, in the way that they're like, hey, try it out, see what happens versus somebody that was very uh, regimented and, and kind of against um, the, the idea of um, iterations and changes and, and flexibility on a lot of these things. I'm curious as to your thoughts on you know what the f next maybe five ten years look like for your industry specifically how do you see people gathering these new opportunities in terms of the different automation tools the the different pieces of technology that they could implement now how how are they discovering it is it at one big conference a year is it putting out a podcast like this to start to piece together kind of the interest what do you think well, I hope that podcasts like this are part of an ongoing conversation that um, things like, uh, well, part of the part of the reason that we um, I, have, I have to give a thank you to uh, some of the people I interact with on, on Twitter that they had been asking a question about emergence and wholeness and about the diff about the split between the physical, uh, the physical and the mental. And that prompted a discussion about going beyond it. Um, I still need to put more content out there, guys. It's coming. <laughs> so the uh, the it, it's a fascinating topic. But the about the about about how people go forward with this. Well, 
I think that the the conferences is, is definitely uh, part of it. I think that the the more people talk, the more people really deeply explore issues. It's one reason why I love the podcast format. Uh, and I think that things I participate. I, I was really happy to participate in this conference called Purple Sock, which is um, P U R P L S O C, and that. Um, this takes place uh, right outside uh, Danube University Krems, which is right outside Vienna, uh, and that that's a fantastic place where really software design and architecture come together. A lot of these pattern-based things are, are are researched there. That's a great forum. Uh, I really listened to a lot of great things that were happening there. I think um, one of the things that I'm working on right now. Um, in Sorrento, Italy, here with uh, Alessandro Fiorentino uh, at the uh, Museum of Inlay, the Museo Muta, is that uh, we are, in fact, this is, you've, you've got the inside track right here. We are working on, as we speak, announcing a, uh, a biennale that will invite people to uh, design uh, furniture and design objects um, for the modern world. And we're, we're going to be sending out those invitations soon. And I, that's going to be a, uh, it's somewhat inspired by the old industrial exhibitions. And I think a place where you have, again, this is talking about the, um, the, the, you know, the mental and the physical and the wholeness. And really, you want both at the same time about having a place where what people are talking about is what they're making, what they're making is what they're talking about, and you're seeing how the two interact and what the consequences are. That's the type of thing that we want to do. It's not just an art exhibition, not just furniture, it's not just a conference. It's, um, it's about how the ideas make the things, about how the things make the ideas. And I think the more, the more people, I, I think people are going in that direction, and I think that that's a, a very fruitful uh, path forward. I'd love to hear more about the emergence work that you're you're referring to. I, one of my favorite podcasts uh, is this uh, podcast called Radiolab, and they touched on emergence, I think, in their first or second season uh, when they were originally referring to ants and how something brilliant in terms of complexity comes out of seemingly the actions of hundreds of thousands of stupid and unconnected uh, little creatures. And I'm curious how that plays in your world. What does that look like? I, I'd love to hear it. Oh, emergence, boy. Yes, so this is, this is really important because it gets into, uh, this is grounded in the idea of entropy, one of the greatest <laughs> uh, frontiers cool. of, of science of the late 19th century, the idea that in a closed system, things tend to a steady state of disorder. And, but in nature, you see the emergence of order happening. And there is a, uh, th this can go very deep into the literature on so many fronts, but there is a redefinition of the nature of life itself. And this is a question that was actually raised by uh, Denis Diderot, the guy who wrote the original encyclopedia right before the French Revolution in a, a book called D'Alembert's Dream, where he pointed out, he sometimes it takes ideas centuries to percolate, he pointed out the absurdity, the logical messiness of creating a wall between life and not life, 
at the point of biology. And, that, that, and we're seeing science is now advanced enough that we are seeing how that is becoming practically uh, a limiting definition. It's still okay to use it. I mean, we, we can talk about something being alive, not being alive. I have no arguments with that. But I think that it helps, especially in design, to completely reframe, and I believe this is a necessary reframing, to reframe the definition of what life is to a more entropic definition. That the that life is the emergence and development of order, of, the, of morphogenesis, the creation of shape. So you would have, so in that sense, it's actually perfectly scientific to say that something like a crystal is alive in a sense that it has stimulus and response. It does grow. It's a very simple, basic kind of life. So then you would have something like a galaxy having its own sense of life. And again, this is not entirely new because if I was having this conversation uh, in India or Japan, they would probably say, congratulations, Western person. You, your, your, your mind has now understood <laughs> these, these good possibilities. Yeah. Um, and I, I think a lot of our limitations in design has to do with, I, I mentioned ecology when you were talking about supermarket design. Well, that has to do with life. It's about seeing the social interaction of a building as a living thing. And when you do that, when you, see, when you understand it as life and understand that you're part of it, then that kind of, uh, that, that is the fundamental first step to going beyond the kind of disaffected, sterile alienation that we've been left to deal with in the wake of industrialization. So I think that the that that emergence and the understanding of emergence, which I would define as a general vital life principle, has those those broad metaphysics have incredibly practical consequences towards addressing the problems of how we feel, work, and live in the built environment. I, I'm I've, there's so much to unpack here. Fascinating topic. I'm sure you've heard of. The, uh, it was the brainless slime or the fungus that redesigned uh, basically the Tokyo subway transit system. Are you familiar with this? I have not heard of this. This sounds fascinating. Oh, what happened with that? It's so cool. So basically they put uh, a piece of fungus on uh, basically a, a board and showed uh, a few different main hub areas where the existing stations were. And I mean, you can you can watch a ton of videos on this. It's been covered in all kinds of different science magazines. But essentially, what happened was the fungus found the most uh, opportune or or fastest route to all of these different areas with the highest amount of efficiency, which essentially gave those within Tokyo a better perspective of how they could redesign their entire subway based on the workings of this brainless slime mold that found a way through life. Uh, and I, I, I find it absolutely fascinating that this element of emergence was something that they could apply in real design. And, and it, it, it's kind of a tangent of what you're speaking to, but um, really interesting stuff. That's part of it, because really it's, it, it's, it's about listening to how things interact in the, in the environment. And there, I mean, that's not even, you could almost call it artificial, and, it does the similar thing that we want artificial intelligence to do. 
And I think it's instructive to realize that's not artificial intelligence. That's what AI, that's what we want AI to do. But it is just, uh, it's just regular old biological intelligence. Sure. Well, thank you. These are absolutely fascinating topics and there is so much fertile territory for further explanation. So uh, Taylor, thank you so much. Really glad that you gave me a chance to come on. Thank you, David. Thank you. We'll, uh, we'll have you on again soon. Thanks so much. Thanks.